Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Cynthia. And I'm Yvette. And this is episode 12. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw critical analysis of law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down the barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. On this episode, for our current events segment, we'll be covering the potential termination of temporary protected status. For deep thoughts, we'll be delving into respectability politics, which I've been dying to talk about. And for our case, we'll be talking about Goldberg v. Kelly, the case that deemed it constitutionally necessary for a person to have a pre-termination evidentiary hearing prior to welfare benefits being taken away. But before we jump in, Yvette, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm happy because I'm officially on Thanksgiving break. And this weekend, I'm going to L.A. for Polka Stereo Fest, which I'm really excited about because I'm excited to meet a lot of awesome podcasters and people who listen to podcasts. Um, and I'm excited because tomorrow I'm going to Harry Potter World, which is fulfilling a childhood dream of mine. Oh, my God. You're going to have so much fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm excited. Um, how are you, Cynthia? I'm good. I'm not quite on Thanksgiving break yet. I, there's still one assignment I have to finish up. Um, but I am really excited that I'm going to go with my parents to Mexico City uh, tomorrow. I leave. And it's, well, it's kind of like a, a mixed bag because, like, I'm really excited to go to Mexico City and, and see it and explore. I've never been. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad's going to get to see a childhood, uh, a friend of his. So, like, I'm excited for all that. But it's also complicated because, like, the Mexican state is so awful. And in our, my last, Yvette, you weren't there, but in our last class of the, like, international human rights, we were just talking about all the fucked up shit that the Mexican government does. Mm. And so it's, I don't know, it's just, it's a complicated, it's a complicated experience, but I'm still, I'm really excited to go and just be in Mexico (laughs) for a week. Yeah, I hear all that. Have you been to Mexico City before? No, I've never been. I've, um, I've gone to different parts of Mexico, so it's, I've, like, I don't only know the place that my family is from, mm-hmm. but I haven't, um, my parents both had, like, hard experiences when they were young, and they went to Mexico City, my mm-hmm. mom in particular, and so, um, and then, um, I had a, a friend, um, who, yeah, um, had a, also, was, well, he was killed, he was murdered in Mexico City, he was from oh, wow. college, and, um, he was there working as a journalist after he graduated and so I've uh I've never had much of a desire to go until recently <laughs> oh my gosh I had no idea yeah um, <laughs> yeah that's really terrible but um I think you'll all have a good time because the city is really great I enjoyed going when I went in December yeah no I'm I'm looking forward to it um but let's get into our current event on TPS like First off, Yvette, do you just want to start off like with what is TPS and like what it stands for, even? Yeah, uh, so TPS stands for Temporary Protected Status, and it's a temporary residency given to people from certain countries that are undergoing particular kinds of turmoil, like the most common ones are if there's a very serious armed conflict or if there's a natural disaster that's occurred. Um And then there's also just other exceptions that can be created if there's another type of situation that merits uh, temporary protected status. Um, And it was passed in 1990, uh, and it gave the White House the power to decide which countries were included and for how long. Um, So the secretary... Which is really the problem now, right? Like... (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like the issue with all of these temporary benefits, like like DACA and TPS, it's like, it only gives people a certain kind of comfort, like, you feel comfortable temporarily, and I feel like it's just not a sustainable solution, that makes sense. Yeah, and it's so, because it, like, it gives all the power to the executive to implement it, and the White House to, like, make all these decisions, it's really so based on who's in power right and like what their priorities are right and I and I think you're so right I hadn't we can talk about this a little bit further down but I hadn't thought about like what did they 
what did they tell themselves when they decided to grant like this temporary protected status like is it were they dealing with like oh they people didn't want to expand like the number of of asylees or or, Mm -hmm. you know what was going on that they were like oh let's let people live here for 10 17 years but not grant them any sort of like real long-term security and be able to deport them if we want to like that's that seems really harsh yeah it makes sense under capitalism though because now they have this readily available workforce that's also in a very precarious position that's like still scared about whether or not they can be deported and and then they're they can be easily deported if they if they deem that the market doesn't need them yeah yeah and so i guess like it's the secretary right now who's deciding right whether to extend the protection and so and like i think the ones that are where folks are talking about the most is haiti el salvador and honduras Mm -hmm. um and so Haiti was included after the earthquake in 2010, but Honduras was granted the status in 1999, and it's had it since then after Hurricane Mitch. And El Salvador was included in 2001 after the, like, the huge earthquake, and there were a lot of aftershocks and landslides. And so like, these folks have been here for a long time. Yeah, that's what I think might be a little counterintuitive to all this, is even though the protection is temporary actually in a lot of cases with these countries the government has actually continued extending tps so people have been here for decades yeah and so just so folks know like all of the countries that it protects so like all the countries that are the citizens of these countries are included it's 10 different countries it's El salvador nicaragua somalia south sudan sudan syria haiti honduras nepal and yemen so those are the all the 10 countries that are included. And um, so along with temporary residency, TPS provides work visas. Um, I don't know if we explicitly said that before. Um, and then people can also be granted travel authorization, um, which is really great because I think one of the hardest things about um, about like our arbitrary borders is that people get separated from their families and being undocumented in the U.S. you can't leave um, without serious serious risk to yourself Um, and with TPS you are able to be granted travel authorization if you wanted to go visit your family members in your home country Um, and also driver's licenses which is important for like actually living here yeah Uh, yeah so the, th- the thing to highlight, I think was already obvious, but like TPS is a temporary benefit, so it doesn't have a path to citizenship or like to even lawful permanent resident status. Mm-hmm. But like, again, you're, you're still, you're still here. So you're still paying taxes. You're still putting right. into the system. You're just not allowed to take out what you put in, you know? Right. Um, and so there are various end dates associated with the different countries protected by TPS, and uh, DHS is debating ending the program altogether, but with differing end dates for the countries. Uh, So for Honduras, uh, TPS will be left in place until next July, and then at that point, the administration will determine what will happen to it. For Nicaragua, Trump has already stated that he is going to end TPS on January of 2019, and for Haitians, there, and there's uh, 50,000 Haitians who will have their TPS expire in January. Um, Trump is currently debating whether or not he's going to extend TPS. Um, and it's actually expected that he's going to make that announcement soon, either um, you know, around Thanksgiving or before. I don't know about you, but I feel like that's such a sick like decision date. Like, I don't know. Like that, There's something about that that makes me feel like just like yeah. disgusted by this yeah like them I, deciding yeah. on thanksgiving i just can't believe that it's a serious debate because the folks who are coming seeking asylum from haiti desperately need asylum and um, conditions have not at all improved and it just proves i think the callous nature of this administration and how little they care about uh, black and brown folks, and black folks in particular, in this case. Um, 
What has been the general response to TPS? I know you and I had a couple conversations about this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so a lot of people have been talking about how the response to the end of TPS has been much less enthusiastic than the response to the cancellation of DACA. And folks have pointed out that documented Chicanx folks who were really, um, really enthusiastically talking about and advocating for the um, continuation of DACA didn't have the same kind of response to the cancellation of temporary protected status and it just kind of brought out this larger conversation about um, Central American folks and um, their relationship to the Mexican nation-state and Mexican hegemony within the Latinx community um, but, you know, even though that's been going on, I do also want to highlight that there has been really cool responses from directly impacted folks. Like, I saw a tweet about the vigil in L.A. Um, that brought together a huge, for, uh, that was like a Save TPS vigil, and it brought together a really diverse group of people, like priests and rabbis and um, TPS holders and other undocumented folks, um, DACA holders, um, and street vendors, day laborers. It, it sounded like it was like a really strong coalition. And then also un the Unapologetically Brown series has had a really great series of, um, of Instagram posts and posters uh, really highlighting the issue. And she's Salvadorian, I believe. Uh, yeah. So it's been cool. I, yeah. So I think I'd be down. Like we should at a later time, like have a whole episode or just like conversation about, you know, like the Mexican hege hegemony inside the Latinx community. Um, I think that's like, but just to like say a couple things here, I, I think I like, I agree. And I also think it's more nuanced but I, I agree like the fact that I didn't know what TPS was before this I think points to that like I have like known about DACA bef when like it was still in just an idea and not actual legislation so I think like that that does point to that um but and I guess it's it's weird though because like I think based on like who I follow like as soon as like TPS was in the news like I started seeing it on my on my feeds so but I I think yeah I I agree with you and I think it's it's true, and the la the fact that I didn't know about TPS or what it was, even though I like care about this kind of immigration, different protection statuses a lot, and like am informed about them. The fact that I didn't even know about this, I think, shows just the lack of information and the that of these these other protections that impact other communities that are not the Mexican community. Yeah, and I think that talking about TPS is also important because it proves that immigration is a black issue. I feel like oftentimes there's divisions where people associate immigration as only being an issue, well, first of all, of only being a Latinx issue, and then when they say that, they erase Afro-Latinx folks, but then also yeah. I like people just don't recognize the fact that there are so many diverse black immigrants in our country and that there are undocumented black folks in the country and um, the the countries that TPS protects proves that and um, I was I thought it was really cool that there was a group of uh, organizations that are devoted to the issues that face the black undocumented community um, they went to Washington DC to rally for the protection of TPS and the folks who went included um, Baji, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. Um, and I'm trying to find the other. Oh, and then um, the Black Immigration Network, the Undocu Black Network, and the National TPS Alliance. And I feel like those organizations are just good to follow if it's a new idea for you that there are these intersections within the landscape of immigration. Yeah, I was reading somewhere when I was, like, looking more into TPS, excuse me, that, uh, like, black immigrants make up 10% of the black community here in the United States, which is, like, not a small number at all. Right. 
Yeah. And I, I think just something else that's important to highlight is whenever we're talking about immigration and, and why it's important to call to attention and for people to go to D.C. and have these vigils is because this is going to result in the separation of families. Like, once you right. have been here for even two, three years, if you have children, you know, now your children are citizens. And I've, I've read accounts of people saying, like, if I'm deported, I'm not taking my children with me because, you know, I don't feel like they would have the same future in somewhere else that they do here in the United States. And that's heartbreaking to see, yeah. like, parents, mothers, fathers, like, whoever making these, having to make these decisions. So we're talking about TPS and and like we have to always keep in mind the real human cost, like the real impact on families. Right. So should we talk about what's next for TPS? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I saw that. So there's like different approaches. I think some folks are at like advocating for a path to citizenship, like for like legal residence status for people who are TPS holders. And so as a part of that, I saw that there's this representative from New York who's a Democrat, Yvette Clark, who introduced the Aspire Act, and it's to provide permanent residency for certain TPS holders who have been in the U.S. since January 1, 2017, and can prove to a judge that they would face extreme hardship if they were returned. And I think, like, at its surface level, that sounds good, and, and I think, like, that's better than nothing, of course. Um, but, like, in thinking about the implementation of it, like, having to you Yvette would have a lot more experience about this but like just me and my limited experience of helping people build their cases to go before a judge even or just like an immigration officer Mm -hmm. it's difficult to prove anything so like having to prove that they would face extreme hardship if they were returned that's like okay well with the how would the administration qualify that right like would like what would you have to prove like could you prove like use reports that show like the conditions of the country and like or would you have to like prove individual persecution or individual hardship like so so we have to be I don't know it's we have to be really like just on top of how this legislation passes because the implementation of it really matters and so it really impacts like who would be able to be protected and then like with anything like the cutoff date oh January 1st 2017 it just reminds me of how, like, yes, legislation like this is important, but we also have to be doing the work of, like, changing our notions of borders and migration because this, like, solution would, again, be super temporary, right? It would help those that are here, but it would do nothing for those who come later, right? Because migration is constant. And so it's just, I don't know, it just reminded me of that larger need that we have. Yeah, I think that's what's really frustrating about all of the current efforts to quote-unquote reform our immigration system is just that none of the solutions really get to the core issue of freedom to travel. Um, And it seems like we're just really far away from actually guaranteeing that right to people. Yeah, yeah. And, okay, so that's one approach. And I think, like, another approach that folks are taking is advocating just for like continuing the TPS designation slash protection for these countries which again I think is is good and and necessary but just doesn't get Yvette like what you're saying at the larger issue right oh and the last thing I want to note is that every time we like talk about immigrants I feel like we get we go into this language of why immigrants and like, in this case, TPS holders are valuable and, like, why we should protect them and why we should allow them to remain. And I, like, people automatically go to, like, the economic contributions and really forget that people are worth more than their labor. And so, like, in one, like, on one level, I understand that, like, our representatives and different people find these talking points to be the most persuasive to, like, mass people. Mm -hmm. But it's just, like, I don't know. It's, it's not enough, I feel. It's don't, like, we can't keep reducing people to, like, their economic worth. Yeah. Yeah, people deserve better than that. Well, I think I said everything I want to say about TPS. Perfect. Let's end there. Okay.
politics. <laughs> yes, um, respectability politics. <laughs> Cynthia, first, in case people aren't familiar with the term, what is meant by the term respectability politics? So it's it's like a very broad term, and like there's uh, different ways of understanding it. And so I'm gonna I'll like explain it in different ways because I think it applies in different contexts and just it's e- I don't know that's how I, I understand it as a very broad term so it's like it's the idea that in order to be treated better or to like quote-unquote advance more in society you have to be quote-unquote respectable so like behave better dress better speak better and so it's like it's also the enforcement of what's respectable and policing someone's lack of it but like at the n- another level, it's really just, like, the enforcement of white culture right. and, like, the continuous marking of it as mm-hmm. superior. And it, it also just, like, makes people of color or those, like, deemed not respectable have to earn their humanity. So I completely agree. Yeah, so it's, like, it's complicated. It's, it, it's like, super prevalent. It's, like... In your day-to-day, like, I feel like respectability politics comes up in so many dimensions. Yeah, definitely for us at Stanford, I would say. Yeah. Um, I think I really agree that it with you that it makes people of color have to earn their humanity. And I also think it's a form of victim-blaming. It reminds me of Sheryl Sandberg and her white feminism with her book and movement Lean In, because it that perpetuates the idea that the reason why women are being paid less and are systematically disadvantaged in the workplace is because of their inability or their failure to quote-unquote lean in. And I think that she doesn't pay attention enough to the structural issues that make workplaces hostile to women, especially women who are women who have children. And when you take that approach, you just make it so that you perpetuate the status quo. And instead of transforming the workplace so that it's amenable to, you know, a better work-life balance and, uh, better, you know, actually allows you time to be with your family, then you just make it so that everyone in the workplace has to give up significant amounts of personal time and have no work-life balance just so that you can be integrated into that really toxic work culture um and I feel like yeah. With res- yeah with respectability politics it's like instead of making these spaces friendly to us as people of color we have to transform ourselves to fit into this toxic space yeah exactly exactly and we should say that the author and professor Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham is credited with the first articulating it yes. because the term appears in her 1993 book Righteous Discontent, the Women's Movement in the Black Baptist Church, 1880 to 1920. But I will say that I read something that was, like, written in the 1950s, 1960s for a, like, reading group I was in. And the person that, like, it was a black author, and they they were talking about respectability and, like, like, clothing and and all this but they didn't like use the the term so like this idea has been around for a very long time and I think people have always realized like the problems of asking like specifically black people to be more respectable so it's yeah it's been around for a while right um and I think ultimately like what's terrible about this is I guess like another way to say that it's victim blaming is to say that it shifts responsibility away from the perpetrators. So like, yes, like there, like there are cultures that develop in resistance to oppression and those things are beautiful and need to be cherished. They shouldn't be demonized and pathologized um, because white supremacy exists. You know, I just think it's like a really twisted reframing and um, I'm really happy that we're talking about it now because I feel like there's so many examples of this in our day-to-day lives that we should talk about. Yeah, yeah, let's get into it. So first off, do you want to just start with like a prominent example of it and then we'll get more into like actual day-to-day? Yeah, um, so <laughs> uh, I think a really good example of this is Bill Cosby. Um, so 
I would say the, the, the Cosby show and the message that it was trying to send, I think, are part of this package that proves Bill Cosby's respectability politics, but he, you know, has, has regularly said things that blame black folks for their marginalization and disenfranchisement. Like at a 1994 NAACP speech, he says that he criticized the black community for naming their children names like Shaniqua and uh, said that as a result of black culture, that that is the, the, co the root cause of um, all of the issues that the black community faces. So it's like not state repression. It's <laughs> the, it's the names that people give to their children. So it's just wild. Um, but like, he's definitely perpetuating this idea that you need to act a certain way in order to be an acceptable black person. So he's just really committed to policing others behavior. Yeah. And that reminds me that like, if you're, if folks, like, if you're on Instagram a lot, a way that you've, like, a way you've seen people challenge respectability politics is with those, like, posts about, um, like, how, well, how people will post, like, oh, like, show, like, look at this, like, educated brown person, and then people will be like, this isn't the only brown person that matters, and right. so, like, that is respectability politics, like, like, the challenges and the tensions between people being, like, oh, look, like, here's a brown person in a suit and then being like that that suit doesn't make them more valuable so like let's get into that a little bit more so speech Yvette like I feel like code switching is a part of respectability politics because we all know the phrase right like well I won't say that we all know but a lot of us I feel know the phrase of code switching right you talk one way at mm -hmm. home or you talk one way with your when you're with your friends that you grew up with and you talk another way in class you talk another way at work right and so like I think that's a part of it, right? Because we're told, like, we're told that in order to, like, say something meaningful or valuable or to be, like, respected in the classroom, you have to say things in a certain way um, and to make yourself seem more educated. But I, I feel like it really just serves to elevate one speech as the preferred speech when there really is no, no reason why it should be. Yeah. And I think code switching is a good example that proves also how complicated it is to live life when these are at issue because like in in code switching I found in my experience like people take me a thousand percent more seriously and yeah I want to fight back against that and then I'm also, but then I'm also conscious at the same time. I guess it, it's like W.B. Du Bois talking about double consciousness, about how you're aware of how you present and how people read you. And like, I want to challenge it, but I'm also aware of the fact that my message will be more effective or my message will be better communicated to them if I code switch. Yeah, and, like, along with that presentation, it, like, and how you're read is how you're dressing, right? Right. So, like, along with what you're saying and how you say it, like, for example, let's think about when you have to go to court, right? You have to go in a suit. Like, if you wear anything less than a suit, it's just considered completely inappropriate for court. Or, like, if you have right. to go to a job interview or a scholarship interview or any sort of interview, you have to wear a blazer and slacks and a professional skirt, um... But, like, why does what I wear say, like, have anything to do with how capable I am or how intelligent I am? Like, it it really has nothing to do with it. But this is something that, like, like we, like, I won't say we enforce it because I haven't, like, had, in, like, conducted interviews yet. Like, I'm not at that place yet where I'm, I'm interviewing others for positions. But, like, when, like, when I get, when I get there, I'm going to try to not, but this is so enforced, right? Like, everybody knows this, like, you dress nice to an interview, and that's so toxic. Like, the cost of the clothes, like, it's meant to be prohibitive. Like, it's meant to be, you know, only accessible to some. And, and, like, it's super, super tailored to white standards and, like, white aesthetics. I don't know. And very like, heteronormative also, right? Because, yeah. like, like, um, a woman wearing a suit 
that like a judge understands to be a suit that should be worn by quote unquote a man will be read a lot differently than a woman in a skirt suit. Like I've heard a lawyer once told me that there was a judge in Louisiana who expected all of the women identifying lawyers to wear skirt suits. Like he just he like expected them to wear skirts. This is twenty seventeen. In yeah, Louisiana. Yeah. Uh that's and I and I one hundred percent believe that and I'm sure he's not alone. I'm sure there's that happens more often than just that isolated judge. Um and then like everywhere else though too, like you know, when it, like when you think about classrooms or different spaces, like the way that hair is controlled, right? Like mm-hmm. it can't be unruly or big or like frizzy right. or like you're, you're just in how it is naturally, you know? So it, AKA it must look white, right? Cause like that's it, that's like who has like the more straighter hair and whatnot. And like with clothes, going back to clothes, like how it can't be too form fitting or like show too many curves, like, <laughs> sorry, but that's also AKA white. Um, like, and that's so hard, right? Cause it's like so many times it's like, we're being sexualized mm-hmm. without our, our consent and mm-hmm. without us doing anything provoking. It's like, I'm wearing a skirt. I'm wearing the type of blouse that you say I, I should be wearing, but it looks different on me. You know, like we can go back to teacher Bay and like the post about her, her dress and how it looked on her versus like a white woman and how people thought it was in a, uh, inappropriate on her, but appropriate on right. a white woman. It's like, this just looks different on me and I'm sorry. And it's, like, you know, there's nothing I can do about that. And, right. like, having to hide your body all the time, that's so... It's... Demeaning. It's to- yeah, and it's toxic, and it drains you of your energy. Right. I I think it's important to talk about all of these things, dress and hair, like, with our specific experiences appearing in court as law students and people who plan to be lawyers. Like, I had a side cut over the summer and I like got a haircut specifically that made it so that I had my side cut but I could also hide it by parting my hair in the middle and straightening my hair and I did that because respect I'm all these things are so enforced in the courtroom like there was a lawyer who had a very I've worked with that had a very very small undercut and she was like yeah I think the judge has noticed so I wear my hair down like these things police what lawyers actually end up doing with their hair and their makeup and their clothing and I go along with it because I have to advocate for my client and I think a lot of times also clients have expectations of what a lawyer looks like and I just want them to feel like they have the best lawyer possible even if they can't pay for a lawyer I want them to feel like they still have the best lawyer possible so I just go along with these things but you know it does eat away at you it's stifling to not be able to freely express yourself in the way that you want to I'm glad you brought that up Yvette because I think that's like an important component of respectability politics that like we enforce it on each other so like right our clients who you know will often be people of color will enforce it on us which is like on some level I I don't take too much problem with that because I do I agree with you I want them to feel like they have the best attorney and feel confident in my abilities and if you know the way I dress is going to give them that confidence then you know so be it but it's important to note that we enforce this on each other right like um like I remember what growing up like you know (laughs) we would talk about like people with baggy pants and stuff like we would make fun of it and like we would like even if our friends dress that way or we dress that way like when we would introduce them to our parents or you know do something like that we would all know to like hide it right because Mm. our parents are themselves are going to be doing the judging our family members themselves are going to be doing the judging Mm. which brings me to like tattoos and piercings which is something like my family and I don't think this is uncommon like has been heavily against so like like my my parents like have always told me like they would disown me if I had a tattoo or like they were really upset when I got a piercing. So I just like did it without telling them and just one day showed up with like a piercing um, because they're like somehow considered unprofessional, right? Like I was working at Olive Garden and they made me take off my piercing. I was so upset, um, you know, so like it's, it's just like, there's this really like large ban against piercings and tattoos. 
but I don't know. I was just like talking to my dad. I was like, dad, historically, like what cultures have used tattoos and piercings? And like he and I like realized like, well, it's more people of color, right? Like I was looking up the history of tattoos and whatnot. And it's really much has always been much more prevalent in like people of color communities, whether you're talking about like in the Americas or in Asia or in Africa. And so it's just like the shaming of tattoos and piercings. Like, I don't know. I just feel like that's just like like coming from like the pilgrims you know and like the jesuits who just saw all these things as ungodly and unholy and like we still enforce that like you know we see people with tattoos and we like i don't i don't mean we i mean we as in like the society not me personally but like we see mm-hmm. people with tattoos and automatically in the criminal justice system like label them oh gang members you know <laughs> yeah yeah definitely yeah um so, Yvette, why do you th- why do you think respectability of politics is a problem? Uh, so we talked about this at the beginning, but you know it just perpetuates the false narrative that if you act, dress, or look white, then you will receive all of the benefits that white people receive, and that's never going to happen under white supremacy. Again, it just doesn't tackle the real issue which is white supremacy like the fact that respectability politics is a thing that's done is a symptom of white supremacy so to just abide by respectability politics you're not addressing the root cause of the issue um yeah yeah, it's just a lie (laughs) basically yeah no I completely agree I saw when I was like googling this to see like learn more and see what others have already said about respectability politics there's been a lot of articles about it like for black men about like how a suit isn't going to protect you a suit isn't going to save your life like good grades going to college isn't going to protect you from like police violence and so it's just it like it's it's the lie right like oh like be more white like appeal to white sensibilities and you'll be you'll be fine and that's uh, you're yeah it's just you're right it's just a lie um but like looking forward or looking to a more positive note how can we like impact respectability politics i think um trying to live more authentically in the professional spaces that we're in particularly as we gain more privilege i feel like having graduated from Yale, being at Stanford and soon to graduate from there, I'm, I want to strategically utilize some of this privilege in order to make my workplaces more comfortable for my coworkers of color. Um, and I, cause I feel like when you live authentically, you also give others around you the freedom to live authentically as well. Like it's really powerful, not only for yourself, but for people around you. Like I know that I've definitely felt inspired by seeing how other really dope, rad people of color have navigated these spaces and still held on to themselves and, you know, shaped who they are in against against these tired and dry ideas of what it means to be a quote unquote respectable person of color. I completely agree with you and, and have nothing to add. You wanna end it there? Yeah. Let's talk about the case next okay so for this week we're doing Goldberg v. Kelly Mm -hmm. and so let's step back first um before we get into it and talk a little bit more about what this case is gonna is it was really about which is due process so why is due process important so due process is important because it's focused on these two tenets, which the first of which is that the government shouldn't be able to deprive a person of an important interest unless the correct understanding of the law and the facts allow for it to do so. And then even if it can deprive someone of that interest, then the state still has to respect the individual enough to give them the opportunity to be heard by a neutral decision maker under fair proceedings. And that second tenet is kind of a, it's a more normative idea that at least 
there should at least be the appearance of justice or that even if I mean and this is like I think a thing that highlights how messed up our legal system is because this is a prevalent idea that even if an outcome isn't what we want or is unjust if the there's this idea that if the procedure is fair then that's okay um, so due process is important, right? But I think it's important to recognize that second aspect that um, due process doesn't mean that you will get this, the outcome that you feel like is fair. Like, let's say reparations for people of color. It just means that the procedure that you utilize to request that was supposedly fair. Well, I want to get into that a little bit, too, because I think I, I agree with you that it's it's not looking at the outcomes, it's looking at the process. And I do think at least having the process is important because it does prevent some arbitrary decisions. Like I don't, I don't think it prevents them all. And I think we can see that and we can point to a lot of decisions that are arbitrary, but like, I think having the process there helps people feel more comfortable in the decision because it, it's supposed to help you see like how the decision was made and make, making sure that like, you had a chance to advocate for yourself and oftentimes like that's even like these aren't significant enough right because like even if you're advocating for yourself if you're advocating without an attorney you know you're you're less likely to succeed and so just like the impact that an attorney can do shows like how this isn't a robust enough process but I do think that you know due process is important because it it just creates that opportunity for people to advocate for their rights in the face of like government action and like gives you it gives you a right to like be informed of what's happening to to like things you care about that impact your life a lot um but i i agree that it's it's still like a low bar and asking for like sometimes asking for like the most basic of things and in, in due process but yeah i i'm like a process person so i definitely think like process is really important I mean, I think that lawyers think that due process is really important because it provides tools for lawyers to intervene and, um, like, if there's due process failures, then there's more opportunities to appeal a decision. And I think it's, it's attractive in that way. It provides useful tools in that way. But my point is, like, you know, when what we're about to talk about right now with welfare benefits, like ultimately Goldberg versus Kelly didn't secure a fundamental right to receive welfare. And still like the state can pass legislation as a whole that deprives like a whole group of people or like a large swath of people, like deprives them of their welfare benefits. And I mean, that's like happened since the 1990s. The dwindling of the welfare state and so I guess it's just like even if the procedure is fair like rampant inequality can still exist and I think that sometimes lawyers focus on process too much and then don't think about the actual substantive outcomes of the larger picture yeah no I see what you mean but I just I still think it's really important to have a process um but I, I, I see what you mean. But, okay, so getting to this case and the issue, what was the specific issue here? So the lawyer who was representing, there was a lawyer who was representing folks receiving welfare in New York, and they were challenging the constitutionality of procedures for notice and termination of welfare benefits. And the specific question at issue was whether or not the failure to provide a right to a pretrial evidentiary hearing prior to the termination of benefits violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause. Um, so before we get into the, the case a little bit more and why it's important, just to like to be clear, um, so like a pretrial evidentiary hearing, what that means is like having the chance to like get together documents or, you know, like for disability rights, right, you'd get like medical records and like evaluations from doctors and um, you'd get letters from other folks testifying to what you can do on your own and what you can't do on your own. So like that would be like the evidentiary you're hearing, right? Like the chance where you get to produce, like, well, present evidence about why you should or shouldn't, like why you should still receive these benefits and to like this 
like to the government or whoever is making the, the determination. And so bef prior to the termination of benefits, it means like you get a chance to prevent that evidence before they've made the decision to stop your benefits. So just to be clear, because those are like, <laughs> I like I had to reread that so many times before I finally understood what the issue was. So just I just wanted to be clear. <laughs> For sure. Um, so this, I think we wanted to talk a little bit first about why this case is important, um, apart from the due process considerations. Um, so this case is really important because the court utilized an academic article uh, that had a really cool premise as part of their justification for the holding. So Charles Reich, I don't, I think that's how you pronounce his name, argued that the promised receipt of state benefits constituted an entitlement that's the equivalent of like a new type of property under the modern administrative state so what that means is like post 1930s the uh, agencies under the executive branch greatly expanded to include a lot of the things that we now take for granted um, and that the that the government administers like social security for example and so now that there's the idea is like now that there's this expectation of this large administrative state, then the benefits that you receive from it, like for example, welfare benefits are like a type of private property. And I think this is really important because under capitalism, so many people have this idea that private property is like a natural thing that exists outside of the nation state that it's just a natural inclination for a piece of property to be walled off from others um, but and to be solely quote-unquote yours but that's actually like that only exists because of the nation state like private property exists because the state enforces trespass laws and yeah because um, the, the state administers all property laws um, and I think that there's a lot of people who would be like, welfare isn't private property, um, but it is <laughs> because the state creates it in the way that the state creates your, you know, the like lot of your home. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you completely. I, I think that's a really important point. That was like definitely, I think, going into property law when we took that class one out year it was, yeah, the, I don't know, property was complicated, and I realized, like, how much before then I really just thought of property as, like, very, like, material things, and mm -hmm. it's definitely because, like, growing up in this capitalist structure, um, so, I, uh, yeah, I think that's such an important point to make. Um, and so, I think you touched on this a little bit, too, when you were explaining what a pretrial termination is, but the reason why it's important for people to have this is that like, these folks are actually really relying on welfare payments to live their lives to, for, to achieve basic necessities like food and clothing. And so it would really, really hinder people to have to, to not have those payments, to not receive those payments while their case is being adjudicated or, like, while they're appealing their case. Um, so this opportunity allows for folks to present evidence before the official decision is made to terminate their benefits. Yeah, yeah. Um, did this, what do you think this did for due process generally? And so, I mean, I think it, my understanding is that it, like, really, ex well, so at the time, it really expanded, like, what the expectations were around due process, but then it's, unfortunate because it didn't like this line of thinking wasn't really expanded after this soon after the court ruled on whether or not uh, folks were entitled to a pretrial termination hearing for disability benefits which are also that's also a source of money that a lot of people really rely on actually um, and they said that because a person relying on welfare benefits is destitute and would need this money for food, clothes, and healthcare are the basics, but that's not necessarily the case for a person on disability benefits, then there isn't as strong of an individual interest there. Um, so I think it expanded the understanding of due process at the time, like the 1970s, but 
hasn't it wasn't expanded since then which is unfortunate yeah um do you want to go on to the holding or, sh- or do you want to say anything else on that no i think we can just skip to the holding okay uh, so the court held that it was unconstitutional and that people needed to be provided a pretrial termination hearing. And so the state of New York implemented a hearing procedure during the litigation, but the court found that it wasn't enough because they did not let recipients present evidence or be heard orally in person or through counsel or like to cross-examine adverse witnesses. So this like remedy that New York had set up wasn't good enough. But um, Yvette, how did the court get to that decision? So they noted that welfare benefits are entitlements, not privileges, uh, which was talking about a little bit earlier. Um, And the court underwent a balancing of the different interests at stake. The different interests were the need for a procedural due process, the potential suffering that a person whose welfare benefits were terminated could face if they were discontinued, And then that was weighed against the state's desire to lessen administrative costs. And the court ultimately came out, like we said, in favor of welfare recipients. Yeah, and I found that this, like, this opinion has, like, some important language on this that I think, like, we've really forgotten or just, like, don't remember often enough and, like, don't come back to it, especially in the court system. So I just want to highlight it because, again, like, when we find language like this, it's such a, like, gem. So I thought this language was really powerful. So the nation's basic commitment has been to foster the dignity and well-being of all persons within its borders. Mm -hmm. We have come to recognize that forces not within the control of the poor contribute to their poverty. Welfare, by meeting the basic demands of subsistence, subsistence, (laughs) can help bring within the reach of the poor the same opportunities that are available to others to participate meaningly, meaningfully in the life of the community. Um, at the same time, welfare guards against the societal malaise that may flow from a widespread sense of unjustified frustration and insecurity. And I threw that last sentence in because I think it's important to show that people, like, even the justices are aware that if people, like, in poverty are not given, like, basic means to live, AKA revolution is going to happen. And so they're just like, this prevents societal malaise that may flow from a widespread sense. Like you're just worried about like crime. You're worried about like revolution. You're worried about like acts against the government. I don't know. I just thought it was, that line was amusing, but everything before then I thought was really important. Yeah, I actually agree. I thought that that language was really important. And like, I kind of thought that um, the part, I think, like, I thought it was cool that part of that reasoning was required a recognition of our interdependence because they were like, oh, you know, if, like, welfare can stop the widespread idea of injustice and unfairness. And so actually by providing welfare benefits, this is for the common good. You know, like, even if you're not personally receiving welfare benefits, like, you will benefit from a more just society. And I thought that, you know, in our legal system is so, and um, like our capitalist culture more broadly is so individualistic. And I think that the reasoning in this case is really rare. And that's why I wanted to talk about it, because I think those are pretty cool ideas that I wish we talked about more often. Yeah, I agree. And the last thing I want to say, now that we've kind of like gone over what like this case was about, is just why I think due process is important, but also why it's, it's such a, like, it's such a basic thing that we're asking for, because, like, in this case, like, the more I think about it, I'm like, okay, it's pretty fucked up that the state of New York wanted to stop giving aid to people who received it, like, without letting them challenge that decision or present evidence beforehand, and, like, due process is also what gives people the right to, like, be notified of the decision, right, like, before someone cancels your aid and your benefits, like, you have to know, in advance you have to receive a letter and you like need to under like they need to give you an explanation for why and it's like it's such a simple ask like let me know why you're stopping my aid and give me a chance to show you that I still need it and that your determination was wrong um so I don't know I just wanted to highlight that piece of it yeah well I think that's all I have to say should we end the segment yes let's end there okay
Okay, Yvette, what's your recommendation for this week? I wanted to recommend the a documentary on Netflix. It's called How to Survive a Plague, and it follows the activism of the group ACT UP, which was a group of folks who came together during the AIDS crisis to force Reagan's administration to actually devote funding to finding um, to finding treatment that could save people. Um, and it was just really cool because um, it was, it documented the efforts of civilians who really took on the job of the government themselves. Like, I had no idea of this history, but um, the folks in ACT UP were the ones who themselves did a ton of scientific research and presented to the government agency in charge of research for medication and presented it to them and was like, this is what you need to do. You need to create these pills. Um, and then just a whole bunch of other really dope advocacy that I feel like we should remember now because I think that stuff like this gets lost in history and um, it's just also a really well done documentary and it's on Netflix so folks should check it out. Dope, dope. Um, so my recommendation is uh, <laughs> more personal. So I recently updated like the reads page on our website, seredonas.com, and it's not an exhaustive list and because I only want to post what I can personally speak to and what I've personally read and um, sadly, I don't read a diversity of work. I'm very like criminal justice heavy and nonfiction um, like works. So <laughs> it's very heavy on that. I'll, I'm going to try to diversify my reading and, and read some more stuff for like pleasure and and um, or other like instructive fiction works. So I'll update it as we go. But I just wanted to point folks to it, especially like with the breaks coming up and um, for those of us who are in school, like the winter break and whatnot you're looking for a book to pick up and don't know what to what you're thinking about I would recommend checking out the reads on our on our website awesome um, um, so to wrap up before we end before we say bye I just wanted to remind folks to please rate us on iTunes if you are so inclined and are able to and, and listen to us through iTunes it really matters and it it's important and also I love reading your reviews I like constantly yeah. go and check for new ones and it's just I don't know it's just like little love notes I feel <laughs> yeah I love them too it seriously makes my day and probably my week every time someone writes a new review so please please do it it would make us really happy yes and along that note like write us letters or emails I mean mostly emails you don't have our addresses but like write us emails with questions and comments or anything we love to hear them and we always reply I think we always reply right Yvette we do, yeah. Okay. It just yeah. might take us, like, a few days. Yeah, yeah. So we always reply, and we're, yeah, we would love to also share them with, like, everybody else. So uh, doing, like, a le listener letter segment would be dope. Yeah, and even if it's just, like, writing in about what you'd like us to talk about, then um, please just write us in. Um, and also, I feel like we haven't encouraged people to follow us on Instagram or Twitter lately. So you can find us at Cerebronas on both Instagram and Twitter. And finally, we also have a Patreon page. Um, thank you to those who already support us, um, because with your support, we were able to buy stuff like the bookmarks and bumper stickers that I'll be selling at Podcast Serio Fest. Um, and so we just wanted to kind of put a plug in for that again, because we want to create more merch like caps and t-shirts. But those things are a bit more expensive, so it would really, if like those are things that you're interested in, then it would be awesome too if you could uh, donate to the Patreon. Um, and if we have any leftover bookmarks and bumper stickers from Podcasterio Fest, we'll let y'all know in case you all want to buy some. Yeah, so with that, Yvette, have a lot of fun at Podcasterio Fest. I can't wait to hear all about it and see how it went. Yay, and have an amazing time in Mexico City. Thanks. See you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who it is, son? Stay hey, yo, my dogs roll heat.